Welcome back, everyone, to MediHealth Podcast Special Season, Episode 4. In the last episode, we learned about Professor Fru's philosophy journey. In this episode, we'll learn more about the intersection between health and philosophy with Professor Fru. Today, again, I will be your host. Okay, I want to tie this back to one problem I always have in mind. I would say most disciplines in uh, social science or sciences or humanities, you can have a one single solution. But in philosophy, even the most I would say critical things there usually are many ways to approach something. Even in ethics, you have consequential deontological virtue ethics. And even within these perspectives, you will have many different answers to one single ethical problem. And especially if you're working in the areas of practical ethics, like should we apply this policy? Should we bring this policy? Which policy is better? And even when you try to attain one single goal, which is, let's say, to give the utmost rights to a human being by bringing policy x you can have different answers and even when you have one single answer it might actually in one way or another contradict with what is best according to economics or financial aspects of, of a firm or an institution you're working for or from the business aspect there there might be problems so in all these cases there is a need for a compromise and at least to some degree so how can philosophy be useful under such pressure? So I suppose, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to say that, you know, philosophy is the only thing out here that can, that can help us make progress. I mean, we have, you know, lots of other disciplines that are making lots of contributions, right? And, and in any kind of policy arena, there's a whole, you know, policy all on its own already brings its own complications, right? That are their own discipline. So I wouldn't want to accept that the idea is that philosophy carries a burden of like, figuring this out or something for us, right? But I do think it's clear that philosophy can make contributions. I think it, you know, very few disciplines in, in any thorough way sort of explicitly grapple with values and conflicts among values, right? That, that has remained sort of the province of philosophy, if you like. And it's clear that a lot of the conflicts and trade-offs that, that any kind of policy at scale is going to have to engage in or is going to involve conflicting values or, or trade-offs and values. And so, you know, all the empirical sciences, right, can only get you up to the point where you might understand what the trade-offs could be, right? They're not going to, it's beyond the scope of those disciplines to, to even enter into the question of how do we choose? So in that sense, it seems like there's a clear place for philosophy to step in. Again, I wouldn't want to say it's the only thing to step into that gap, but certainly it's a prominent, you know, tradition of work that has a lot to contribute there. So, you know, I think the other thing to say is in a, in a general way, trying to be um, critical and circumspect and, and even, you know, imaginative and, and clear and transparent about, about the arguments that bear on how we make these choices you know, is something that, again, philosophy is well positioned to, to advance in a way that is probably distinct from the kinds of contributions that other disciplines can make. But, but I think you're right, like, you know, if, if what you're hoping to get is a clear directive, a solution, you know, I don't, I don't think philosophy is just sitting on a holster of silver bullets or something, right? That's not, that's not going to happen either. Right, right. Like, there's no like a direct black or white, but there are some gray areas where we need to learn to balance between. And 
to, to be able to think critically and transparent on things. I understand that to develop this, um, it's critical to start young. And to, so I was recently you had a mini term course on this really cute topic on little people, big questions for developing children illustration books. So would you like to share more on that? What got you interested to have that course? Yeah, sure. Thank you for bringing that up. That's fun. Yeah, I, um, I really enjoyed the, the course. Um, that was just a couple of weeks ago at, this, at, the, at the time of taping. Yeah, there, I think we had um, uh, nine DKU students in the course. And it's just it's a mini term course. So it's only four days. And so basically what we did in the course, we talked a little bit about what philosophy for children is. There's, there are a couple of places around, around the world that where this idea of philosophy for children is sort of taken off. And, and has sprung up and materialized in the, in the form of programs where usually university personnel are sort of running it and staffing it, and they are, they are working collaboratively with some schools in their, in their area. And that's sort of what I wanted to, to, to sort of pilot in this course. And so we talked a little bit about these programs, we, um, and we looked at some, some children's literature, some books for kids, picture books. We're talking about pretty young kids in this case, six and seven-year-olds is our target demographic. And, uh, and then we went to a school in Suzhou to run a, a philosophy for children session based on books that the students in the class had created over those really a day and a half or two days. Even. And they did, they, they made some, they made really great thing. Every single person in the class had a great idea for a children's book, a great idea. Um, I say it unequivocally, you know, executing something like that in that short of a time is a huge challenge obviously and especially with children's picture books like the illustrations are a huge part of what the product is so that's especially <laughs> challenging and many of them of course were were not were not the students were not like people who identified as amazing artists but it's a nice thing about kids books that the illustrations can be really simple but still powerful um so some of them you know sort of found their way to that uh solution anyway so uh that that was sort of the the push for the course. I think, I mean, I wanted to try it for, I guess, a number of different reasons. Probably the biggest one is that I have young kids and I spend a lot of time reading with them. And, and I find that it's just a lovely activity. There is some idea that, as you say, starting young is good. There is some research that suggests that philosophy for children programs have measurably positive effects on kids. I think that data is pretty shaky, to be honest. <laughs> but, uh, and, and actually just like few days before the course started, a study came out of the UK that was like, hey, philosophy for children doesn't make kids better at math or anything. <laughs> Which, you know, like who was trying to do that? But fair enough. So yeah, I'm still trying to, to, to learn more about what the course was like for, for the students. And I think the school that we were working with, which is Dulwich College in Suzhou, they were very receptive to the idea of collaborating. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really hopeful that we can move towards a kind of sustainable program whereby DKU students would, you know, on a regular schedule, go and run sessions there with the same group of kids over, you know, over a semester or something. And I think that there you could really start to do some interesting things because then you have a chance if you're working with the same group of kids to sort of really establish some norms of what you're doing and how you're going to do it. And I think in that kind of context, after you're there for, you know, if you're going once a week or something, after you're there for a month or two months, then, then the kids can start to really be comfortable with the idea of what you're trying to do. And, um, and it's just true of kids that they, in some respects for doing philosophy, they have an advantage over older people in that they're willing to ask questions that we don't think to ask. <laughs> and so it, it can be very fun and rewarding and interesting. And, 
And as I say, maybe there's some reason to think that it's 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 productive for the kids too. But indeed, I have a I have a friend who is working for philosophy for children in different yes. and work in different primary schools and middle schools. It's just amazing what these kids could ask or think about. What they say sometimes can be like very unexpected but yeah. insightful at the same time. It's just interesting, yeah. as, especially as compared to like older people. I suppose yeah, that's I, a different I, idea. You could do uh, philosophy for old people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was looking at that one, yeah. Yeah, so for, I want to end this podcast on a, a note regarding health, um, since we are the MediHealth podcast. The last question I have for you is about incorporating health, and again, this, this sort of human element into philosophy, or incorporating philosophy into the human element, so you can take it which, uh, from whichever perspective you'd like to. I think it is a difficult thing to do, uh, especially when you when you take into consideration the many aspects, many layers, let's say, of a human being, of human health, the issues about human health, there are religious problems, there are physical there are bioethical problems, and when you try to address one of the issues, you accidentally put yourself into a network of this complexity and uh, many other questions at the same time. And it is difficult to come up with answers, whether you are, uh, as you mentioned, like human consultancy or uh, ethical consultancy in, a, in an actual hospital or trying to dabble in the question of bioethics. So I will ask you a very, very, very broad question. What is health philosophy? And I know we have talked about health mantis in the other podcasts. Uh, I wasn't there personally, but mm -hmm. you think about the philosophy directly and how does it actually concern us, like humans, people in yeah. general, and philosophers more directly also? So to me, within the umbrella of health humanities, which is, you know, quite a, a big tent, as we might say, there's lots, of, there's lots of room in health humanities for lots of different things. But certainly, as a philosopher, the thing that is most plainly in there to me that that I that I'm, you know, aware of and comfortable with and conversant with is is bioethics, right? Where you know, and different people have different, you know, some people speak about biomedical ethics, and that's meant to be sort of a more precise delineation of what of what the domain is rather than bioethics where bioethics might just be like ethics as it's connected to life or something like that where that can include for example you know non-human animals and moral questions even you know about about the environment that could be quite a large thing but biomedical ethics anyway certainly like a core area of health humanities where you know ethics is is squarely part of philosophy and philosophy is squarely in the humanities and 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 that discipline is sort of taken on a life of its own and, and has its own norms and journals and, and scholars and so on and so forth. And I think bioethics, biomedical ethics encompasses a really large set of questions in different ways connected with health, connected with the health of individuals, connected with health in clinical situations, connected with health policy, connected with population health, connected with, you know, at every different level. So there's just, there's just a lot going on there. That's still a you know, health humanities is a very big tent. Bioethics on its own is a very big tent. There's tons of things going on there. I think there is also a, a slightly different domain that's relevant, which which I guess would be called philosophy of medicine, where it's not necessarily or directly just a, a subfield of ethics, but where the questions that are asked would include questions that are more metaphysical, possibly epistemological, possibly some other thing. And and I and I know less about 
what I think would be called philosophy of medicine. But I think that's another clear area where, where philosophy has a lot going on. I should also mention research ethics, probably since I'm the chair of the IRB at DKU. This is also a pretty big area of, of activity. And, you know, it's a, it's, and that is an interesting field in its own right. It's part of bioethics, certainly. But look, I think the very idea of health, right, cries out for philosophical examination, right? Um, like trying to describe what healthy, what it means to be healthy, like in purely medical terms or something like that, right, is completely futile. Like you cannot, that is the wrong way to ask that question. If you ask a biologist, right, you, you might learn some things, but you're not going to get to the bottom of what it means to be healthy. So and not to say that philosophy has got like, you know, as we said, <laughs> clear, discrete answers to offer about these kinds of things. But it, it, I think to assume that like the right methodology for approaching a question like that belongs in the sciences is a mistake. It's not that kind of question. So, you know, that's a clear place to start. Like, what do we even mean by health? What does health mean? And, and it seems like we have to, the work that has to be done to, to respond to that kind of question travels through lots of different parts of, of philosophy and lots of questions about what it means to flourish as an individual, what kind of role individual choice plays in these kinds of, so there's, there's tons of interesting cases. So like one kind of case where this, this kind of question is pretty, pretty acutely at play is in the case of what used to be called apotemnophilia which I think more commonly now goes by bodily integrity identity disorder, BIID. It's this condition that certain people find themselves in where they, they just, a part of a very specific part of their body feels like an imposition, like, like it doesn't belong to their body, even though it, in biological terms, it is a healthy functioning member of their body. And there is probably, there is almost surely a, you know, a physiological, biological uh, explanation for why this is the case. Nonetheless, you have here any any medical doctor would say that is a healthy limb, right? But this person feels that their health is impaired by that limb being a part of their body, right? And so you, you have to decide, well, what, what is the notion of health that we're interested in? What is the notion of health that we want to privilege? Is it the biological one that the doctors give us? Or is it is it the, the individual's idea of what it means for them to be healthy? Um, when, for example, the individual comes in and says, I would like to have a surgery to remove my arm. You know, it's kind of an extreme case, but I think the, the question that it poses is not is not an unusual or alien one. It's one that we're that we're all sort of constantly managing for ourselves. We hope that these two episodes help you to gain a fresh new philosophical perspective on health issues. Stay tuned in the next episode where we will chat with Professor Clemens on arts and health. See you. Bridging the Voices. Many Health Podcasts. This episode is hosted by Ege Kandman and Marifa Fen with advices from Professor Mark Speller. Audio is edited by Josia and uploaded by Chutong Fang. Graphics are designed by Tanushi Kochar and articles are written by Anna McCain and Gloria Gunn. Social media publicity is directed by Yuhu Jin and secretary contributions are made by Mei Chen Yap. Opening music is produced by Chong Yihuan. A huge thanks to Professor Kyle Fru for being a part of this project. And also a huge thanks to DKU Health Humanities Laboratory for sponsoring this podcast.